You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is another day for history. It's a great day for history. Looking forward to digging into more of the history of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and Lutherans in North America. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. For this series, our guest is Reverend Dr. Lawrence Rast, Jr., President of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Rast, welcome back to The Coffee Hour. Thanks. Wonderful to be with you. This history is fascinating and so interesting, and I'm glad that we have this opportunity to spend some time with you learning about our history as we prepare for the convention of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Last time we learned a lot of history that brings us up to now the Saxons, because there were several different groups of the the states that, that made up the German nation, the Holy Roman Empire, German nation. But now we've moved forward in history, and so now we have the Saxons that have immigrated to the states. Where does that bring us? What do we need to know about the Saxons and their settlement here in the states and what that mean, means for the church? How much time do you have? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Five hours. <laughs> And that's about how long it typically takes me to do this. Briefly, there's a great book called Zion on the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. It's it's extensive, it's well-documented, and it's pretty well-written, although it can be, it's a long book, and it takes some discipline to get through it. But we the whole story that we're going to look at really briefly here is told there and told well. The, the, the Saxons who end up forming the Missouri Synod have a, they really have a significant impact on the formation of the Synod in several ways, largely due to the experiences they have, unhappy experiences in some ways, in coming over here to America. And to make the, the very long story as short as I possibly can, it all, it centers around two men. One is named C.F.W. Walther, who ends up being the first president of the LCMS, remarkably gifted man in any number of areas, including as a musician. He really wanted to be a musician as a young man. His father, who was a pastor, said, nine, and you're going to be a pastor. You're going to be in the family business, as it were. But he, he continued his music throughout his life, including we still sing his hymn, He's Risen, He's Risen, Christ Jesus the Lord. And he played the organ at the congregations in St. Louis pretty regularly. So he, he stayed with it to his credit. Wonderful. But Walther's one of them. The other is a, a pastor by the name of Martin Stefan, who was a pastor in Dresden, Saxony. And in kind of an unusual circumstance, he served an ethnic congregation, if we can call it that, of uh, Bohemians, hmm. so Czech speakers and uh, German speakers, obviously, as well, but always with a Czech accent. And uh, he, he had this unique kind of situation where he didn't fall under the usual rubrics, the usual laws of the church, because he was serving this immigrant congregation and made a huge name for himself in Saxony and other German states over the course of his time as a pastor in Dresden from 1810 to 1837, 38, actually, when when the immigration occurs. But he he preached he was part of what was called the Erweckungsbewegung, or the, the awakening movement, and this return to Lutheran confessionalism. And the 
an emphasis on timeless truth as rightly confessed, not only in the scriptures, of course, as the basis, but also then in the Lutheran confession. So this movement that really kind of kicks up after the 300th anniversary of the Reformation, and he's part of that and makes a big name for himself. And as a result of that and also some quirky habits as an individual, how's that <laughs> putting it? Ends up being really pursued pretty vigorously by authorities in Dresden. And, uh, you know, you can read all the details in, in Zion on the Mississippi, but uh, to make that story as short again as possible, he and his followers, which will include people like C.F.W. Walther, decide that they're, they're going to go to America for the sake of religious freedom. And Walther's gotten connected to him after he experiences a really crisis in his own life as a student at the German University of Leipzig when he's confronted by extreme rationalism. And, you know, it's just, just really, really struggles with that and also his own lack of personal piety as he sees it, although seems like a pretty pious guy to me, but, but he's not convinced. And so uh, he seeks spiritual counsel from a pastor and he's guided to Martin Stefan. And Martin Stefan writes him a letter. Walther later calls it the comforting letter that just kind of opens up the gospel to him. He'd been living very much under the law. And Stefan says, of course there's law and the law condemns, but here's the gospel that is centered in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Walther says, I was freed. And he rejoiced. And to the end of his life, he said, I appreciated the, the clarity with which Stefan distinguished between law and gospel. And that really comes to define his own life as a pastor. So he, he, he recognizes Stefan providing that. But he also recognizes that he makes a youthful mistake. Well, maybe not just a youthful mistake, but a, a human mistake, where he conflates the message that he received from Stefan with the man, mm. Stefan. And he and others begin to, to look to Stefan as kind of their spiritual superior and almost a a go-between between them and God. And so when Stefan is perceived to be persecuted for his preaching, teaching, and other quirky activities, the the these younger pastors and a lot of people in the congregations in and around Dresden say the church is gone here in Germany. And if we're going to be faithful, we have to move it. We have to transplant it, literally, to America. And so in the, the fall of 1838, having put together a passage for about 665 folks, that's Forster's number, on, on five ships, they make their way to America. One of the ships is lost, the Amalia. The other four make their way to, uh, to New Orleans. And as they're preparing to, to, to come to New Orleans and land in New Orleans, they put together a document called the Investiture, in which they name Martin Stefan Bishop and basically give him all authority in their community. Well, that doesn't turn out well, as you might imagine. There's conflict, there, there are accusations against Stefan of inappropriate relations with women and, and, any, and, and inappropriate use of community funds and all sorts of stuff. And at the end of May of 1839, after they've been in America for just a few months, they roam across the river into Illinois and dump, you know, which is pretty much what you, Illinois is good for. But I'm, I'm a native. I can say that. I was born in Chicago. 
but <laughs> sorry, but they, they send him off and they, they think, well, now we've solved all their problems, but they haven't solved all their problems. What they find is they're left with one another. They haven't resolved the underlying kind of issues that led them to the point of following this guy, almost really cultish in character. And now they have to figure out what are we going to do? Well, it's turmoil, absolute turmoil for two years between 1839 and 1841. And then being good Germans, they finally decide we're going to have a debate and settle this once and for all. And so at Altenburg, down in Perry County, they have a debate in April of 1841. And the idea is we're going to have a, we're going to square off between those who are arguing for pastors to be the authority and another group where laymen are the authority. A lawyer takes up the layman's side, Walther, the young pastor, he's the youngest of the pastors, takes up the, the clergy side and they're, you know, they're, they're going to square off and have the battle. And Walther comes in with a set of theses and just kind of blows the whole thing up and says, we got it all wrong because we're talking about authority, which is, discussion of power, which falls under the heading of law, and we've lost the gospel. What we need to recapture is the centrality of Christ at work through word and sacrament, where the Holy Spirit creates, sustains, nurtures the whole Christian church on earth. And he just reorients the entire community and puts this in a gospel framework. It's beautifully done. It's magnificent. And the people go, huh, right. And that really becomes the moment then when movement towards what will be the formation of the Missouri Synod kind of happens from the Saxon part. Walther builds on this by publishing a newspaper called Der Luther Honor, the Lutheran, in 1844. A copy of that comes into Winnikin's hands, and he reportedly says, thank God there are other Lutherans in America. And we got to get together. So Winnikin, being the great networker that he is, works to have a series of meetings. And the, they occur from beginning in September 1845, pulling together folks from, again, a variety of different German backgrounds, first in Cleveland in 1845, then in St. Saint, Saint Louis. No, sorry. In uh, which one's next? St. Louis in May of 1846, and then Fort Wayne in July of 1846. And, and there at St. Louis, they draft a constitution. And in Fort Wayne, they revise it. And then they prepare for a meeting in Chicago in 1847. And that's where the Missouri Synod will actually be born. That is quite the history. There's a lot, a lot of drama. And I know there's a lot that, that we don't even have time to talk about that happens through all of this and, and all of these different people that played a role in all of this formation and we have one more break to take and then we gotta we gotta tie some bows on this in the next 12 minutes to to connect it to where we are today i know we're we're there we're there we're we're in chicago (laughs) we're talking with dr larry rass president of concordia theological seminary in fort wayne we'll be right back you're listening to the coffee hour i'm sarah golseth i'm andy bates At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's 
uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. We are talking with Dr. Larry Rast, president of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, about the formation of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We have made it to Chicago, 1847. What is this meeting that happens? Who are the people that are involved? And, and what, what actually forms in that meeting to, to create this new synod? Yes, excellent question. Well, you know, I, I, I always ask the question when I'm speaking around the synod, where was the Missouri Synod formed? And everybody says, St. Louis. And I say, no, it was in the center of the universe, Chicago, where I mentioned I happen to be born. But in all seriousness, they choose that spot because it's Missouri, Ohio, and other states. And the in a lot of ways, the easiest place to get to for the most people is Chicago in 1847. So you have the Saxons coming up from St. Louis and Perry County. You have Winnikin and crew. Winnikin's actually, he doesn't attend. He's out in Baltimore at this point in time, but he's encouraging other folks to kind of head that way. You have a very interesting group coming from the thumb of Michigan and uh, led by their pastor, August Kramer, who is the, the pastor of St. Lawrence Lutheran Congregation in Frankenmuth, Michigan. And he's become aware of the, the, this movement. He actually participates in the July 1846 meeting that uh, when, when the Saxons come up from St. Louis, and uh, Kramer actually tells the story of meeting Walther for the first time where he's, he's at this dumpy little town. I shouldn't call it that. This nice little town called Junction, Ohio, which is just, just east of the Indiana-Ohio border on the Wabash and Erie Canal. And it's at the junction of a couple of canals, and that's the way the guys come up. And Kramer's very excited to meet Walther. And he's waiting, and he's waiting. The boat's late. And they, you know, the, this group is anticipating the arrival of the, the Saxons. And here comes the, the boat, finally, up this other canal. And Kramer sees him and says, well, I didn't know which one he was, but I saw this very gaunt, skinny man with the largest nose. And it turns out to be Walther. But they end up having this marvelous working relationship over the course of the remainder of both their lives. Walther dies in 1887, and Kramer dies in 1891. And they just work hand in glove. And it's this, you know, they come from different parts of Germany. Kramer's a Franconian, Walther's a Saxon. But they, they share a biblical confession, and that guides all of their work together. It's a beautiful thing. To see, and that happens with a lot of folks. Well, so the Frankenmuth folks and, and the other Franconian colonies in the Saginaw, Michigan area come and participate in this as time goes on. So again, you're drawing together folks from a variety of backgrounds, a variety of areas. Walther's own congregation is a little suspicious of the whole endeavor because it seems like, you know, the pastors might want to have too much authority. In time, they are able to incorporate into the Synod's constitution the the very important point that every congregation remains autonomous, that is self-governing. But one of the ways they express their self-governing is to be a part of the Synod. So we, you know, we work 
together in synod to, to do the things that we as an individual congregation could not. Mission work, publishing, seminaries, etc. But those are kind of the three biggies. And so those are central, really, to the synod when it's formed. Mission work, which initially means intermission, you know, local kind of mission, but in time will grow into to international mission. And publishing, there's kind of ad hoc efforts at this, but very shortly it becomes focused in what today we know as Concordia Publishing House, which does such tremendous work. And then, of course, two seminaries. And these two seminaries actually predate the Synod. What's today Concordia Seminary St. Louis is founded in Oltenburg in December of 1839. So even as the Saxons are just getting going, they form their first school. Kind of a grade school, frankly, at first, but then reorganizes itself. And by 1843, it's very recognizably a seminary, moves to St. Louis in 1849-50. And uh, the other seminary, as uh, some folks will say, is founded in Fort Wayne in October of 1846. It's founded by Friedrich Winneken with the help of Wilhelm Lea. But the guy they call to uh, serve as president is this, this Silesian military man in his first career named Wilhelm Seeler. And he comes in and oversees the seminary's work during its first Fort Wayne stay, which is 1846 to 1861. Then the two work conjointly because Germans are cheap and they're trying to save money. <laughs> so the, they're both together in, in St. Louis from 1861 to 1875. But the synod grows so quickly that in 1875, the practical seminary, as it's called, moves to Springfield, Illinois. It's there from 1875 to 1976. And then 1976, back home again in Indiana. And that's where I'm sitting today as I'm talking to you and looking at our beautiful chap. So we're really blessed uh, with two r robust seminaries that predate the formation of the Synod itself. And so you, you hear what's important to the Synod at its formation, mission work, initially inter internal, but then overseas, publishing, and training pastors, and as time goes by, church workers of all sorts. So they're clear right from the get-go. This is what we're about, and that's what we're still about. And when you get to the convention in Milwaukee, you're going to see that's what we still do. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about where we go from there, that the forming of the the synod, the German Evangelical Lutheran Synod of Missouri, Ohio, and other states. Did I get all that right? <laughs> you uh, did. Well done. And forming of that synod to then subsequent meetings after that. Presently, we meet every three or four years now, mm -hmm. early days of, of the synod. How often were they meeting and what were they accomplishing or not accomplishing <laughs> in that time? It's, yeah, it's very interesting to read the early the early proceedings of the Synod, although most people probably wouldn't agree with me on that. It can be a little dull, but, but it, to me, it offers a window into what they thought was important and, and how they wanted to impact not only the larger the kind of religious landscape of America, but especially local communities, because the congregation is central. That's where the word is preached. Sacraments are administered. So everything is, is really geared from the Synod side to support that. And uh, that meant initially we were going to meet every year. And we, when we were tiny, we could do that. But as we get bigger, we move to different times for, for meeting. Typically, maybe that's the wrong way to put it. 
what we've used, the, the pattern we've used for most of our history has been to meet every three years. Obviously, with the pandemic, we did a four-year cycle this time, which is some folks would, I think, be pretty supportive of. Also, however, before, from 1965 to 1983, we met every two years. So we went to a two-year cycle. Although, interestingly, we would only have a, an, an election for president and vice presidents every other Senate convention. So 1965, we, re, we elected Oliver Harms president, and he was not up for re-election until 1969. He was replaced by J.O. Preuss, and Preuss served from 1969 to 1981, but only had elections in 73 and 77. So different kind of a way of arranging it. And that's just a matter of, you know, what do you think works best? So, so we'll see. I don't want to go to every year. That I will fight against with all of my being. But uh, I'm pretty flexible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we'd survive every year conventions. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, Sarah. Once every three or four is plenty. <laughs> plenty, plenty. <laughs> so as we're leading up into convention, learning all of this history, what are some things that we can learn from all of this history of the past of why we became a synod, the important things that are still important to us today and maybe some things from some some of the key figures as well these these men that we can look up to as some of the i don't know heroes of the faith heroes of our of our founding that had very good ideas and very solid biblical grounding for what we yeah. do together as synod that's good yeah that's a wonderful question i am again kind of focusing on the the reasons for formation and and, and the first constitution of synod were very explicit about that why do this well to support one another in what is really the central work of applied in the context of the local congregation or to carry on the kind of work that a local congregation typically can't do on its own. So above and beyond all other things, it's the synod exists to support congregations. Now, in 1854, we had grown so fast, so quickly, in seven years, we actually said, the structure we have isn't sufficient, so we need districts. So we didn't have districts at the formation of the Senate, but we created four in 1854, and that was, again, to support the local congregations. Well, today we have 35, and the, the, that doesn't change anything about what, what Senate exists to do or what the, the districts exist to do. Again, it's for the sake of the proclamation of the word and the administration of the sacrament. So I'm all, I always test everything. Is this going to help? the local congregation, because that's what it's about. I mean, we test our own work as a seminary that way. Our job is to form pastors, deaconesses, lay leaders, missionaries as an institution. Are what we, is what we're planning to do going to serve that end? It's not to maintain the institution. It's not to ensure that we have a beautiful campus. We do. We're thankful. We have two beautiful campuses. But but those are kind of kind of extraneous to the heart of the thing, which is, the proclamation of the gospel. So I always test that. You know, I make lots of speeches at floor committees, and, and President Harrison usually doesn't call on me when I'm at a microphone because he knows he's just going to, I'm kidding, that's not true. <laughs> but I mean, I make the same speech all the time because Synod is there to support, seminaries are there to support, the other institutions are there to support where the real work gets done at the local congregation. Now, 
places where the local congregation can't or, or would struggle to do as well as congregations grouped together, let's do that together. And that's then what Synod can help coordinate, and especially foreign mission work. But increasingly, I think it's absolutely imperative that we think more intentionally, as we did at our founding, about mission work internally, because the United States is a mission field. There is no question about that. So what I would like to hear more of constantly is how do we, how do we continue to work to ensure that the gospel is proclaimed in our own settings, first and foremost. Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Lawrence Rass, Jr., President of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Rass, thank you so much for this great history of who we are as the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, where we come from, what it means to be the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, and, and why we continue to meet in convention. Thanks so much for helping us dig into this history. Much thank appreciated. you so much. It's been a delight, and I'm available at any point to talk for 5, 10, 12 hours, you know, whatever you need. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> I love it. (laughs) And I'm sure I'll see you soon at convention and maybe get the rest of the scoop there. (laughs) You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere.